Well, you might remember that at the start of this series in 1 Kings that we've been in uh, for, this is the fourth week now, uh, we set ourselves the goal that uh, we would allow this, uh, this book, or really these chapters, these uh, three chapters that we've been looking at, to reignite or to continue our passion for God and his way, for going his way with our lives. And within these chapters we've been able to see what it would look like to live passionately for God, what it would look like to be single-minded, to be focused in our following of our Lord. You might remember the first week uh, we started that process by trying to work out whether we can be sure God can be trusted. And what we saw in 1 Kings 17 is that when God speaks, he's telling the truth. And really, if you're going to be passionate about something, that's really the first step, isn't it? Is it worth being passionate about is it, is it true? Is it authentic? And so we saw that in 1 Kings 17. The following week was all about following God. If you're sure he's telling the truth, then you've got to follow him. And last week what we saw is that one of the dangers that we can fall into is as well as following God, we can be following a whole bunch of things, putting our trust in a whole bunch of things and what ends up happening is we become double-minded like the Israelites were in 1 Kings 18 and the word, the passage used for living that way is limping through life. Uh, You end up with your legs tied together and so we saw that what God wants for us is to be single-minded. And so really tonight, uh, as we come to 1 Kings 19, is is a bit of a summary as we ask the simple question, are you passionate? Are you passionate about the Lord? Are you passionate about going his way with your life? You might remember the very first week we looked at a quote uh, from Pascal where he said, however vast a man's resources are, he is capable of but one great passion. However vast a man's resources are, we're capable of one great passion in our lives. That's our question for tonight. What is your one great passion in life? Let me uh, leave that question with you as we uh, open one king's chapter 19 together and as you're turning to 1 Kings 19 let me tell you about a very important date in my life. February 25, 1998 is a date forever burnt into my memory. I remember the day uh, vividly, I remember particularly about 8 o'clock at night or about 10 past 8 it was at night, I was lying in bed, I was sick and the phone rang. And it was a friend of mine. My mother said, it's, it's, it's your friend Ben and he wants you to come to the phone. And I said, I'll just tell him I'm not really up to coming to the phone tonight. I'll call him back. And she said, no, he wants to talk to you. Now, what Ben wanted to tell me was that our friend Greg Vanderquark had died, aged 22. Now, Greg had gone camping with another friend and they had come round an innocuous turn on a dusty uh, outback road and they had hit the only tree for miles on the passenger side of the car where he had been sitting. And I've got to tell you, that date, as I said, is burnt in my memory. That event changed my life forever. I live differently now because of that day and the events and the weeks that followed it, I think, taught me a great deal about myself and a great deal about the things that matter. I remember a week after Greg died, a group of us, uh, including my friend Ben and a, and a few, few others, went down to the site of the car accident, wanting to see it for ourselves, wanting to try and see what had happened, how this could have possibly happened. 
And I remember uh, seeing the actual site and it was this, this almost innocuous turn. You could hardly see the turn in the road and there's this one tree for miles. And I remember later in the day we had to go to the local police station, easily the hardest part of the day, uh, where we had to collect Greg's possessions that they had got from the car. And I remember picking up those possessions and uh, it was very hard because here are these things that you attach to someone that means a great deal to you. Here are these things that a lot of them you, you remember him using You know, when, when we went camping together and things like that. All of a sudden, the meaningfulness of all of these things is gone. And I remember uh, we, we had to sort through the things, uh, a lot of them covered in his own blood and some of them were destroyed uh, because of that and we took the ones that weren't back in a backpack. And as we drove back in the car, I remember thinking as we uh, put this backpack in the back of the car as we drove along, we could have easily pushed that bag out of the back of the car and nothing would have changed. For Greg was not his possessions. Instead, he was a man who had lived for God and had died tragically aged 22 on some outback dusty road and none of what was left in that bag actually mattered. It could all go, none of it mattered. That day taught me a lot. It taught me more than anything about the power of perspective. I think it's difficult to see how things really are, isn't it? Uh, In amongst life, in amongst uh, the busyness of career or school or work, whatever it might be, there's so much around us that it's hard to see things as they really are. But if the truth be known, the only things that really matter, and this is the things that we were talking about on that car trip back that day, is knowing Jesus, knowing what he's done and knowing that you're living for him. That's all that matters. The rest of it is just the backpack in the back of the car. It's easy to get distracted from that, isn't it? But that's our question tonight. If all the stuff that makes up who we are, all the things that we fill our lives with, if all that went out the back of the car and was gone, what remains? What's your one great passion. What is it that drives you? Well, let's turn to 1 Kings 19 and see what having the Lord as our one great passion would look like. It's page 361, if you've shut the Bibles, page 361 of the Church Bibles. You might remember last week we sort of left it at a bit of a cliffhanger. We'd had this amazing scene on top of Mount Carmel and then you'd had King Ahab racing back to Jezreel to talk to Jezebel and we had, a, uh, we had Elijah ahead of him the prophet of God leading the king, the way it was meant to be. He was Ahab's moment of truth, his chance. After all he'd done to lead Israel astray, here was his moment to accept God's grace. And in verse 1 of chapter 19 we have his decision. We see Ahab telling Jezebel all that had happened on Mount Carmel in 1 Kings 18. The amazing power of God that he'd observed the way God had removed the prophets of Baal totally and utterly from the land. And I think as you look at uh, verse 1 of chapter 19, it's difficult to know exactly what sort of frame of mind Ahab was in as he was telling this. You know, was, he, was he relieved? Finally it's clear who he should be trusting, who he should be following. Was he afraid? Was he angry? Well, I suspect as I look at verse 1 of 1 Kings 19, the picture of Ahab I get is of a little kid dobbing, a little kid going up to a teacher to tell on someone. 
I suspect he's more like that, hoping the teacher will do something. Elijah stands outside anxious to hear the outcome, whether the king will go with the Lord or stay with Baal and with Jezebel. And Ahab, well, he proves himself totally and utterly spineless. Do you see it there? In the end, it's Jezebel who makes the decision. She sends word to Elijah, a death threat, fighting words, hate-filled words, crazy words, really. Remember what's just happened. The prophets of Baal have been wiped off Mount Carmel. The Lord has proved that he is God and Baal is a fraud. He is a non-existent God. And yet she still passionately goes that way, even now threatening God's servant with death. In one sense, it's hard to know why she reacts that way. But in another, it's not a surprise, is it? All throughout these chapters, we've had these amazing pictures of belief, of the power of trusting God wholeheartedly. We've seen it with Elijah. We've seen it in the widow of Zarephath in Obadiah. But here we have the power of unbelief. You know, I think most often when we see unbelief uh, in God, we, we, we treat it as a casual decision. People are indifferent towards God and, and that's it. But that's not the picture here at all. You see, unbelief is to reject the truth, to reject God. And all throughout the Bible, this is the picture of the power of unbelief. We see it with Pharaoh and Moses as God brings plague after plague to prove that he is God, even in Egypt. And yet Pharaoh hardens his heart. We see it with the Jewish authorities as they confront Jesus who has authority over nature and over over demons and even over death and over sin and yet they reject him. And so standing back from Jezebel's actions we might think what on earth is she doing? But the truth be known many of us stand where she uh, once stood where she stands where Ahab stands. In the New Testament, Jesus tells the story of the rich man and Lazarus, of a man who has lived his life rejecting God, wanting nothing to do with him, and now finds himself in hell under God's judgment. And he he calls up to heaven, asking heaven to go back and tell his family that he was wrong. Heaven's response, even if a man was to rise from the dead in front of them, they wouldn't believe What more could God have done to convince Ahab on Mount Carmel than he already did? What more could he have done? And if you're here tonight and you have yet to come to trust in God, let me ask you that question. What more could God do to convince you it is worth trusting him, that it's worth trusting his son Jesus? What more could he do? Think about that. What's that one thing? Or maybe there's a few things. What are those things? If you've got them in your mind, let me ask you another question. Do you think if those things happened it would convince you that you would trust him, that you would follow him? Or could it be that there's another problem, another blockage, a bit like Jezebel, a bit like Ahab? You see, unbelief is rarely, I think, a decision to reject something on the the basis of a lack of evidence. In the end, it is the active rebellion against the rightful king That's what's happening here. And so the decision is made and we see in verse 3, Elijah runs. It's no surprise, of course he does. But the danger here in this passage is we can misunderstand why he runs. 
Do you see the translation there in verse 3? It says, Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. But take a look down at the very bottom of your Bibles and I think most Bibles have this. There's a little footnote. Uh, It's got a little A and a little 3 next to it. It says, he saw. Now what it's saying there is you can, rather than have Elijah was afraid, you can have Elijah saw. And without going into uh, the nitty gritty of it, it seems to me looking into it this week that the weight of manuscript evidence actually points to this being the original translation that somehow over time, whether it's people looking at the passage and thinking, of course you'd be afraid. The the king's wife has uh, just threatened you with death. Of course you're going to be afraid. But I think in the context of the passage and the Elijah we have seen in previous chapters, that's not what's going on here. Elijah saw. And so in this context, what's being said here is in chapter 18 we see Yahweh show that he is God and not Baal. We see the people declare that. We see Ahab tell Jezebel this and we have the death threat. Elijah sees all this, understands that in spite of everything that's happened on Mount Carmel, nothing is changing. The king is still rejecting his God and so he runs but not out of fear, not a fear of dying. In fact, if you look even just a few verses on in the, in the passage, that's what he's desperate for. That's all he wants now. He just wants to die. So he's not afraid of death. He's broken, totally and utterly broken, heartbroken. And so he runs. He heads from the desert as far away from Ahab, as far away from Jezebel in this tragic moment as he can get. He runs from the very north of the northern kingdom to the south of the southern kingdom. He runs, finds a tree, sits down, prays, curls up, ready to die. He has hit the wall, the wall of unfaithfulness, the wall of unbelief and he is broken. That's the picture here. Enough, he says. All along he has been a man who desires what God desires. Remember that prayer that he prayed on top of Mount Carmel, that that prayer that expressed the very heart of God, that the people would turn their hearts back to him. That's what he wanted. And instead he's been met with cold hearts. And so now his heart is shattered. And so he says to God, blow the whistle, I've had enough. And so lying under the shade of this tree, he falls asleep. It's hard not to feel for him, isn't it? Every ounce of his energy has been poured into this mission and he has nothing to show for it, nothing. And so God has moved as well and he sends his faithful servant, an angel, with word and with provision. Wake up, my friend, and eat. Elijah musters just enough energy to rise up and eat this simple meal given to him and then he collapses again. God sends the angel back again and here we see just this amazing compassion of God. It's so gentle. It's like he's waking a baby. He provides him with another meal. He knows his servant's limit. He knows he has much further to go and he knows it's too much for him. You ever felt like that? Totally exhausted? Totally spent? Like you've you've come to the end of your resources. There's nothing left. Ready to hang up your boots. I imagine it's easy to feel that way in lots of ways in life. I remember in the first few months of uh, Jamie's life 
our second child, our daughter, uh, feeling like that. Our first child, Finn, in his first sort of six months was like a model child and we thought we were the, the greatest parents ever. We, we just sort of cornered the market in parenting, knew all the tricks and then uh, Jamie came along and everything sort of reversed. And uh, I think really from about 4pm in the afternoon to about 11pm at night she'd just cry solidly. And Liz took the brunt of most of this and I, I sort of got it uh, later on in the evening but uh, I remember a number of times just hitting the wall and thinking, I'm not sure I can keep going with this. Ever felt like that? I remember seeing uh, the press conference last year for a, a famous uh, Olympic swimmer, Australian swimmer, Ian Thorpe, who retired aged 24, probably about 10 years before he needed to. But there he was and he said, I can't do it anymore. I don't want to do any more laps. I don't want to get up in the morning. No more tumble turns. No more looking at a black line on the bottom of a pool. I'm done with it. No more. And I suspect uh, when people reach retirement, they can feel like that, you know, that the job is done. Don't want to see any more days at the office. It's all done. But this is different, isn't it? What Elijah is feeling. Imagine getting to the end of your life feeling like you've finished the job, but not the job of a a swimmer or even a parent, but feeling like your great work in your life, like Paul in 2 Timothy, was being a servant of God and thinking, I am finished. Well, that's where Elijah is right now. He says, I'm done. I'm done. I've done all I can do. But he has reached this point as a devastated man. As he prepares to hang up his boots, he feels like he has nothing to show for it. I was thinking about uh, Elijah here and I was uh, reminded of going to the beach uh, with Finn. Uh, Recently he's got into the whole sandcastle thing. He just loves sandcastles and so we build sandcastles together but he hasn't quite got the concept of sandcastles yet and so I build it very carefully ensuring there's enough water in it so that it's actually sturdy and it's going to stay there and we sort of look at it and within seconds, bang, he knocks it over with great glee. He says, Dad, build another one. So we build another one. I'm hoping you'll watch it this time. No, bang, there we go. And this continues for ages. That's the picture of Elijah here. He's worked so hard and it's just destroyed. There's nothing, nothing to show for it. But as we get to verse 8, it becomes clear that Elijah's boots are needed for a little while longer. You see, the food the Lord has been providing him with wasn't for the journey that he's already been on, it's for the journey yet to come. He eats, he drinks and revived by Yahweh's provision, he goes on further. And not just a little way, do you see it there? 40 days and 40 nights, he continues, and he reaches Horeb, God's mountain. He finds a cave and again exhausted, he falls asleep. Next morning he's awoken with a question from the Lord, verse 9. Elijah, what are you doing here? And with that question I think begins one of the most special passages in the Bible, verse 9 onwards. What are you doing here on this mountain, Moses' mountain, the covenant mountain, the place where God bound himself to his people forever? the mountain where he made clear what he expected of his people, the place where God's people did business with their God. What business do you have here, Elijah? You know, a lot of commentaries see this question from God as a rebuke of Elijah. You know, what are you doing here? This is the big leagues. This is Moses' mountain, not yours. 
rebuking his right to be there. But I suspect it's more of an invitation. You see, God has revived him for this journey. He has brought him here. He's led him to this mountain, this spot. And I think for two reasons. And we see the first of those in verse 10 with Elijah's answer to God's question. What am I doing here? I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant. They've broken down your altars and they've put your prophets to death with the sword. I'm the only one left and now they're trying to kill me. God is inviting Elijah to pour out his heart, to weep because God weeps about these things too. God's heart is broken by unbelief, by unrepentance. You see it again and again in the Bible it's no more powerfully seen than with Jesus' words as he stands above Jerusalem, about to enter it, heading towards the cross. He says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often have I longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you weren't willing. That's what God wants. He wants their hearts, but they wouldn't come. He says, tell me about it, Elijah, I know how you feel. You see, you cut open Elijah's heart here in verse 10 and this is what you see. You see God's heart. The same things that break God's heart. If we were to cut open our heart, if we were to see a cross-section of our heart, both as a church and individually, what would we see? Do the things that break God's heart break your heart? Unbelief, unrepentance, rejection of his grace, does that break your heart? that we have friends and maybe even family members like that, does it break your heart? Elijah is devastated, but not out of self-pity, I don't think. He mourns for God and his people. He mourns because he is surrounded by a people who have cut themselves off from God's blessing, burnt all the bridges that lead back to God and shut their ears to his voice. Sound familiar? It should, because that's our world. Does it break your heart? God's response? How does God respond to unfaithfulness? Do you see it there in verses 10 to 13? In short, faithfulness. He tells Elijah he is going to come close and pass by him as he did Moses on this very same mountain. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. A gentle whisper. Better translated, the sound of absolute, drawn-out silence. No background noise. No shuffling of paper. No shuffling of bums on seats, nothing. And straight away Elijah knows God has come close and he hides his face and he turns away towards the cave. God's response? Silence. Why? Well, because he's already spoken. Because he is faithful to his original word, his original promise. There is no new word 
for that mountain. There is no new word for his prophet. He is sticking to his plan, his eternal promise to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. There is no new plan. 2 Timothy 2, here is a trustworthy saying. If we are faithless, he will remain faithful for he cannot disown himself. The only voice on Horeb that day is the gentle whisper of God's faithfulness. And what the remaining verses do for us is it shows us how that faithfulness plays out, how God sticks to his original plan. Have a look at verse 15 onwards. And really the way we see God's faithfulness in these verses is in two ways. We see it in judgment and we see it in grace. They're the two things that show us how God expresses his faithfulness. God responds to Elijah's charge. You see, Elijah says the very same thing he did in verse 10. He says it again. This time more, I think, as a charge against Israel and so God responds with judgment. Elijah has to go back the way he came, trudge back through the desert and anoint three people to judge Israel. Hazael to be anointed king over Aram. He will judge Israel from the outside An army will be raised up and will come against Israel. Jehu is to be anointed king of Israel and he will judge Israel from within. And Elisha is to be anointed prophet and he will judge Israel from above, bringing God's word to bear on them. Judgment against Israel is to be total, outside, inside and above. But hear the word of the Lord to Elijah which is his word to us. You see, verse 18, God's last word is never judgment, but grace. He will yet reserve a remnant whose hearts and allegiances he has guarded. They will be his people. You see, God's faithfulness involves more than his judgment. It is full of his grace. And here is his word to us, his word to his broken servant and his word to us tonight. Grace always wins. The God of grace insists upon it. In fact, he's promised it. And the story of our world is a story of heartbreak. We are not okay. Our world is far from God and that is not okay. He grieves about that. But hear his word to Elijah, his word to us. Grace always wins. Jesus dies only to rise again. Grace always wins. And there is nothing Jezebel or Muhammad or Buddha or Scientology or materialism or terrorism or any other ism or idol can do about it. Grace always wins. And so if you are a servant of the Lord of grace, hear what the God, the only God, the living God, is saying to you tonight. Hear his assurance the defiant certainty he brings to this world. It's a certainty that kept Elijah going as he trudged back through the desert to do this. It's a certainty that kept the Apostle Paul marching all the way to the execution block of Nero and it should keep us going. Grace always wins. You see, Elijah wasn't the last of God's broken servants who charges into this world headlong with a gospel of grace only to be smashed Read the story of his successor, Elisha. Read the story of Ezekiel, of the Apostle Stephen. Read Paul's story and ask yourself, are you with them? Does your heart beat as fast as theirs? Are you driven by the things that drive God's heart? 
Is your heart broken by the things that break his heart? One of the great privileges I've had growing up is to be raised by Christian parents. Uh, I, I thank God for that virtually every day. It's an amazing privilege to have been raised from a young age to have known the gospel. Amazing. But one of the sadnesses that has come along with that is that my siblings, my older brother and my younger sister Charles and Catherine are not Christians. They're wonderful people, they're kind, they're generous. I love spending time with them, I miss them a great deal. But they've rejected God. They're far from him and it breaks my heart. And I've tried everything. I've tried talking, I've tried arguing, I've tried giving them books, inviting them to things, praying. Every angle you can think of, I've tried it. If you know another angle, I'd love to hear it afterwards. And it's easy to get to the point that Elijah reaches in this passage and say, I give up. It breaks my heart. And I'm sure you feel the same way about many of your friends and maybe even family members. How about forward? Does this village break your heart? How about this city? It should. God says to you, you have time in your life for just one passion, just one. One great work. Make it God's work. And don't fear lining up with the likes of Elijah because our God is faithful and he goes with us into the fray and he is strong to deliver. And God's faithfulness, God's grace, always wins. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you uh, that even though we live in a world uh, that is far from you, that you are a God uh, who sticks to your course. Your course... Uh, to pour out your love on this world through your son Jesus. Father, we pray that you would give us hearts for this world, hearts that would long to see uh, hearts in this world turn back to you. Father, give us boldness with that, give us passion for that. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.